The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. If you uh, have your Bibles with you, could you turn in them to John chapter John chapter 6, verses uh, 66 through 69. And we're in this uh, final message of a series on hope. And uh, what I'd like for you to do is, uh, during our time together, I, I pro- provided for you an uh, outline. On one side is a blank for you to just take some notes. On the other side are some of the main points of the message, along with uh, the Bible references. So um, we're going to encourage you always to open up the Scriptures. And if you do that, uh, using the Bible in front of you, we'll give the page number. If you have your own Bible, uh, you can do that too. But also put the put the words on the side screen. What I would suggest is that perhaps, um, you know, be open to the distractions of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that sound a little strange, right? The distraction of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We can tell when distractions are not from the Holy Spirit, right? If our mind wanders about things later in the day or football or whatever it might be. But sometimes the Holy Spirit, being the true teacher, takes a portion of the Scripture and all of a sudden that is the point that you have been brought here to hear, and to be open to that, uh, knowing that uh, the scriptures are, uh, they're listed for you, so throughout the week you can go and uh, look at those also. And so, if you feel comfortable, use the Bible in front of you, or uh, uh, use your own Bible. We, uh, the theme verse for this uh, series has been from 1 Peter chapter 3, and in reading it, in the first week, Pastor Casiglia asked you and I to come up with, say, a a statement um, reflective of the hope that we have. Peter says these words, But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And so I heard that a couple weeks ago. I said, you know, I don't know what my reason would be. I try to put it in a sentence and it always... You know, didn't seem to kind of come out right. And so uh, I figured, you know, if you were to ask Peter, so what's the reason for the hope that you have? What would his answer be? And I believe we have a good answer in John chapter 6, and we'll use this as the theme throughout uh, our time together. So John chapter 6, beginning at uh, verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you, Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And so, Peter, what would be the reason for the hope that you have? I think he would simply say, well... To whom shall we go? To whom shall we go? And maybe that's a good way to have conversation with your friends or co-workers who ask you the reason for the hope that you have. We'll say, well, where else can I go? And then maybe ask them, well, where do you go? And why would you go there? Um, But I think that's a good answer. To whom shall we go? So I took that thought, to whom shall we go, and tried then to give some answers through the witness uh, not only of Peter, but also of the Apostle Paul, as well as the prophets and the Psalms, and to say, I think these are some 
good statements, some good answers when we say, well, to whom shall we go? Because there are no other, there are no other gods. Well, to whom shall we go? There's no one who does good, not even one, and so we have this problem. We need to be reconciled to God in some way. Well, if there's no one good, not even one, how does that happen? Well, salvation then is found in no one else. There's nowhere else where we can go. That this God, in the person of Christ, desires no one to perish. He does something specific about that to give us faith, so no one can say that Jesus Christ is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. And when you have that, the promise is, is that nothing can separate you or I from the love of Christ. And then you have the promise of eternal life, where there's the promise of no more. No more. So we'll take each of those, we'll connect the scriptures to them, and give answer to say, I, I think this is the reason for the hope that we have. Where else is there to go? To whom shall we go? So let's begin with the first one. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Turning your Bibles to Psalm 115. Again, this is the witness of uh, not only the, the apostles, but also the prophets and the psalms. And in the Psalms, specifically in this Psalm, Psalm 115, it says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. So why do the nations say, where is their God? The psalmist says, where our God is in heaven, he does whatever pleases him. And then he makes this distinction about what the gods of the nations are like. And... Uh, to give you a reference point and image for this, when my family was in Papua New Guinea, uh, my father was a missionary there, and it wasn't a third world country, but more of a Stone Age culture, very animistic, uh, worries about the supernatural realm, and so they would actually make gods. And so they brought to my father a little man, it was a, it was a god looking like a little man made out of uh, human hair, and it actually had eyes and a mouth and legs and feet and ears and hands. And they brought this to my father and said, the God that you have told us about, Jesus, is now our God, and so we want to give this up to you. We don't trust this God anymore. So you might think, well, you know, that's just kind of a Stone Age culture or for things back in the days of the prophets. But we all have gods, don't we? Might not be idols that we have in our home, but we do have gods. Anything that our heart sets itself upon trust in, that is our God. So what does the psalmist say? Well, using that imagery of this idol, he gets very specific and says, these gods, they have what? They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They even have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. Feet, but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Psalm 16 says, The sorrows of those who increase, you know, they will increase who run after other gods. To whom shall we go? There are no other gods. You pray to a God that has eyes, but he can't see what's going on in your life. You pray to a God who has ears, he can't hear you. And so you even see the prophets. If you, 
if you're one of those personalities you just kind of like to be on you know, uh, top of uh, the conversation and uh, you know, taunt a little bit, well, you, know, you could do this with the taunt of the prophets. There's a good story in 1 Corinthians 18 that reflects this, and it's the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And there's this contest, they're called to come together, 450 prophets of Baal and the prophet of God, Elijah, and they both prepare sacrifices, put them on altars, and, you know, the contest says, whoever's God brings the fire down, that's the true God. And so here's the prophets of Baal, and they're calling out to their God, and it's about noontime, and Elijah comes, you know, over and says, well, is your God on vacation? Is he traveling? Is he thinking deep in thought? You know, is he too busy? And they cut themselves, the prophets do, trying to get this God to act, and nothing happens. So it's Elijah's turn, and he says, you know what? Take buckets of water and pour it on the sacrifice. Pour so much water on it that there's water around it in the trough. And then he prays to God, and fire comes and consumes all of it. This idea of there are no other gods. Isaiah, the prophet, if you read those chapters, 44 and 46 in Jeremiah, you'll see this taunting and says. Why are you doing such things? You take a piece of wood and you cut it in half, and half of it you make an idol out of, and then the other half you use to prepare food. So from the same piece of wood, you have an idol that you bow down and worship, and then you have wood for cooking. In fact, you know this idol that you made? The prophets say, he has legs, but he can't move, so you have to pick him up and carry him to the place where you want him to go. To whom shall we go? Well, the scriptures are very clear about our God. Now, we have a God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At a specific point in time, Galatians says, when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman. The second person of the Godhead actually comes into human flesh. John says it this way, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So what is our God like? Does he have eyes? And Jesus, he, he can see. He has ears to hear your prayers. Does he have a mouth to speak to you words that bring comfort? Does he have hands and feet and a body to know what it's like to suffer as you suffer, even to the point of death? To carry all of our sin upon himself, becoming the sacrifice, experiencing that on our behalf for us, to whom shall we go? The Lord Jesus says, I am. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the light, I am full of grace and full of truth, no other gods. Fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Now, continues. If you turn to the Psalms, go to Psalm chapter 14. And the Apostle Paul um, is a great student of the Scriptures. Um, and so what he does in his letter to the Romans is he takes these Psalms and he takes this point of the Psalms and runs um, an understanding of our need, our nature. He'll use Psalm 14 in, in his chapter 3 of Romans to speak of our need. Chapter 14 says, Well, the fool says in his heart, There are no gods. 
or there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. Now verse 2 and following says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside, they have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Well, to whom shall we go? The psalmist says, as we do an inventory of our life, we must come to the conclusion that there is none of us who can do enough good things to reconcile ourselves to the God who created us. Paul, picking up that thought in Romans chapter 3, says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous. Now, righteous is a big word, right? It's a biblical word. Righteous means right standing with God. No one will be declared right with God in his sight by observing the law, by doing things, by bringing to God these works. Rather, through the law, then we become conscious of sin. And so, the apostles and the prophets, the psalmists, they're all conscious of this need that there is no one who does good. Not even one. We have separated ourselves from God. We have rebelled against God. We are this rebel race in need of being brought, uh, reconciled to God. But we cannot do that in our own flesh. Sin dwells among us. Death can be really defined this way. That sin becomes incarnate and dwells among us. If you've lost someone to death, you know that the death just doesn't Uh, end with the person who you have uh, lost to the graveside, but all the other deaths that come along with it, right? The no more conversations, the no more memories or moments, no more special days that you gather together, all those things that maybe you just took for granted. Death is sin becoming incarnate and dwelling among us, and we see its effect. Paul says the wages of sin is, is death. Sin becoming incarnate, taking on human flesh, corrupting human flesh. But what's the good news? The good news is that whatever the devil does, God not only matches, but goes beyond it. And so if sin is incarnate, becoming human flesh, the Son of God, the Word, the Lord Jesus himself, the second person of the Trinity, becomes flesh on our account, and dwells among us, and he is perfect, spotless, sinless, but as we will find out from the gospel message, what does this sinless, perfect, spotless one do? He takes upon himself all of our sin. So that's why then Paul says in Romans 3, the law makes us conscious of sin, but now there's a righteousness that comes. And where does the righteousness come? Where does the right standing come? Well, it's not from us, is it? No one good, not even one. But Paul says there is one. There is one who is good. There is a righteous man, the Lord Jesus. And now this righteousness from God comes to us. It has been made known to us. The law and the prophets testify to it. This righteousness comes from God and is through faith in Christ Jesus. And so the one who knows no sin, the Lord Jesus, becomes sin for us. And what does he give us in return? He then places on us all of his work, all of his rightness, all of his holiness. And so, yes, there is no one who does good, 
But there is one. There is one among us, the Lord Jesus himself. Now, if that's the case, then to whom shall we go if there's no one righteous? And God then reveals to us this righteous man, the Lord Jesus. Well, then Peter will say, well, to whom shall we go? Who has the words of eternal life? Well, salvation then is found in no one else. Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. If you read the uh, story, the account of Acts after Pentecost, you will see that these uh, men who were eyewitnesses of Christ Jesus declare nothing to the crowds except Jesus Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins. They didn't quite understand all of this work and ministry of Jesus beforehand. They were always arguing about who would be the greatest, right? One sit on your right, one on the left. They're asking for God you know, to restore the kingdom to Israel. They have their own mind what that kingdom would look like. After Pentecost, they are crystal clear in what the message is. Christ Jesus crucified, dead and risen, ascended for the forgiveness of sins. And so Peter in Acts chapter 4 is called to account for the healing of a man. And he's asked, so by what power are you doing it? And he says in verse 10, well, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And then he quotes the Psalms. You notice that? He says, he, speaking of Jesus, he is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone, and then these words, verse 12, salvation is what? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So Peter, where is your hope? Well, he'll say to us, to whom shall we go? There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Echoing the words of Jesus in John chapter 14, I am the way and I am the truth I'm the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, here's the tragedy. The tragedy is this, according to John 3.16, which is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish. The tragedy is this, is that though Jesus Christ died for all, who is the cross for? Who is the work of Christ for? Some people? Good people? No, for the world for all people, though Jesus Christ died for all, not all believe that. Not all believe that. You have friends, you have family members that Jesus Christ died for, but not all of them believe that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Belief. Faith in Christ Jesus. And so Peter will say, salvation is found in no one but him, and to have that salvation appropriated to us requires faith. So, well, how do you get that? Does God care about that? Well, to whom shall we go? Peter himself will later talk about this in his, uh, one of his letters, 2 Peter chapter 3. If you uh, have opportunity to read that during the week, you will see this beautiful, um, mature Peter. You know, we have the Peter who is, you know, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus has to say to him, get behind me, 
Satan. Or, you know, the Peter who says, even if all of these will, you know, abandon you, I'll never do it. And three times he denies Christ. You see this mature Peter who says, says things like this, well, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You have humble Peter in his epistles. And so, for God so loved the world, so what is his desire? Peter will say, his desire is that no one is to perish. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes you look at your world or your circumstances and you have these questions about, why is the Lord not appearing? Why doesn't he just fix everything? Why doesn't he just, you know, take us to himself? And I, you know, at times have been strongly rebuked by the words we're going to hear in 2 Peter. And the rebuke will come from the Lord Jesus himself and his heart for the world. His rebuke is this. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, for what reason? Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to eternal life. And so you answer the question, why is God slow in his appearing? Why is he, you know, maybe not come and take us to himself as, as we so desire? His answer to you is, I have many more who need to hear this message of the gospel. Now you, you think about this. If the Lord Jesus, maybe some of you here, would have appeared, chosen to appear 25 years ago, would you, would you have been in the kingdom of God? Maybe 10 years ago. Maybe a year ago. Why? Why has he been slow? Well, we find from the scriptures that we, in our hearts, are foolish and slow of heart to believe. So Jesus in Luke 24 is walking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He's listening to them. They don't understand, don't recognize him. And they're trying to tell him about all these things that have happened in Jerusalem. You know, the crucifixion of this one that they thought was the Messiah. And uh, they're not understanding the events of the times. And Jesus says to them, well, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all that the scriptures had to say about himself. So why is it that the Lord is slow? Well, we are foolish in heart. We are slow of heart to believe. But all the prophets in the Psalms will describe God as being slow, but what? Slow to anger. Slow to anger and abounding in love. Well, to whom shall we go? Peter would tell us, we go to the one who desires no one to perish. And then, if the Lord Jesus chooses to reappear today, we will praise him. If he chooses not to reappear today and we wake up tomorrow morning, well, the purpose is, is that there are others who need to hear this gospel message to be brought into the kingdom of God. Now, even there, God is at work. To whom shall we go? The Apostle Paul will make this distinction for us about faith. So if Christ died for all, but not all believe, then the question will be, how do I, how do I get that faith? Is that something I do, or is that something that God gives to me? How does he do it? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
um, and also 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says these words, you know, no one, no one by the Spirit of God would ever say, Jesus be cursed, but no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. No one. I can't convince you, I can't have a rational argument, I can't compel you. All I am called to do is communicate as clearly as possible the Word of God for you to do that with your friends. And in that Word of God, we have the promise that who will be working? The Holy Spirit. To convict us of our sin, to show us our need. No one good, not even one. Here's the good one, the righteous man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, if we ever are saying Jesus is Lord, it is because of the working of the Holy Spirit. Paul continues with this idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you're having conversation with someone, or maybe you experienced this, uh, you know, it just didn't make sense. You heard these words, and people were telling you about a God who is triune. I mean, is this uh, impossible to explain, right? One God, three distinct persons, and your mind just can't, can't uh, understand that. Or that he was born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, crucified, dead, and buried. That just, that just doesn't make sense. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it says, Well, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, because if you don't have the Spirit of God, all the things we're talking about is foolishness, right? But when the Spirit of God is given to us through the Word, through the sacraments, these gifts, all of a sudden it changes us, and Paul says, Now you have the mind of who? The mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. Think differently, you see things differently, all these things are open to you, and you, you find yourself in the creed confessing, oh, I believe that. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. In fact, the third article of that creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, says, I believe that I cannot, by my own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ my Lord or come to Him. Basically confessing, I believe that I cannot believe. But the Holy Spirit calls me by the gospel, he enlightens me with his gifts. And so we can invoke and we can pray to the Holy Spirit. I put some phrases here. What can you pray to the Holy Spirit for yourself as well as for your friends and family? You can pray these words. Turn me. Turn me. Change me. In other words, my life is going this way, I'm walking this way, and the Lord Jesus is going that way. I need to be turned around. I need to be changed. The biblical word for that is repentance. Holy Spirit, turn me. Change me. As David says in Psalm 51, create in me a pure heart, O God. Give me faith, Holy Spirit. You're the one who said that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by your work. Give me faith. Keep me in that faith. Set me apart. Then lead me and guide me and direct me and comfort me and encourage me. When I open up this book, the scriptures, teach me. Open my eyes that I may see the Lord Jesus Christ in the pages of the scripture. Give me all of your gifts, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. And then the promise that you will pray for me. You know the Holy Spirit intercedes for you perfectly. When you don't have words, only groans and sighs, the Holy Spirit perfectly takes those 
before God the Father and prays according to the Father's will for you? Well, to whom shall we go? Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 8. If you are brought into the faith, you have a firm trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus, then all the promises of Jesus are yes and amen for you. One of the greatest chapters that talk about those promises is Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 speaks of, and we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And then it ends with this wonderful, it's like a doxology. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. To whom shall we go? Paul would say, we go to the Lord Jesus because nothing can separate us. Nothing. Finally, to whom shall we go? Turn in your Bibles to Revelations chapter 21, the last book of the Bible. And we realize that we are simply strangers here on this earth, that we are Aliens in a foreign country. This is the imagery of the scriptures. And this really comes home to if uh, you've lost someone, right? A loved one, and you stood by the graveside and you're wondering, is this it? Is it over? And the reality that death brings, if, if, if death is sin becoming incarnate and dwelling among us, well, death hounds all of us. And what death really is, this side of eternity is a series of no mores. No more conversations with the one that you love. You know, no more um, those memories, those family gatherings. No more moments. And there's these series of losses that come with, with death. But even in this, what does the Lord Jesus do? Whatever the devil brings, it's just not as if the Lord Jesus matches him, but he overwhelms him. And so let's take all the no mores of the death, this side of eternity, and see what God says about the promise of eternal life. So, Revelations chapter 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard the voice, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And what then do we encounter? There will be what? No more death or mourning crying or pain. Why? Because there's no more sin, for the old order of things has passed away. And then he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything, everything new. So if you were to ask, you know, what's the reason for your hope? I think maybe a good answer is, you know, just have conversation with another. Well, 
Where else can I go? To whom shall I go? The Lord Jesus says that he has the words of eternal life and to ask them, so where do you go? Or where do you think I should go? And then you can give some reasons. To whom shall we go? There are no other gods. To whom shall we go? Well, here's the problem. There's not one of us who is righteous before God. Not one of us is good enough before God. But there is a good man, the righteous man, the Lord Jesus, to whom shall we go? Well, there is no other name under heaven given except the name of Jesus. This God is patient with us. He desires no one to perish. He even provides for us the gift of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. That as we read it, the Holy Spirit works to create faith to say, Jesus is Lord. And when that happens, we have to promise all the promises of Christ. Nothing separates us from Him. He'll work it all together for our good according to his purpose, to the point where at the end of our life that is not over, that we are brought, we are brought to be with Christ. There will be a resurrection and all the sadness and the mourning and the crying and the pain, that will be no more because we will be in the presence of the one who makes everything new and we will worship him. We will worship him forever and ever. Now, to lead you in a time of confession, because as we prepare the Lord's Supper, what you're going to find is that in the Lord's Supper, all of these really are given to us. As you come forward, that is a declaration, a proclamation of faith. A member of this fellowship, you're, you're renouncing all of the world's offerings to you, and you are coming forward and saying, to whom shall we go? You, Lord Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. You come forward saying, I know there's no good in me, but I know that there is a good and righteous man who will give me his works, the forgiveness of sins, that he has been slow to anger, abounding in love, desiring no one to perish, that he will feed me and strengthen me with this sacrament, his body and blood, so much so that he gives me the promises that nothing will be able to separate me from him. So as I walk away from the table, I have that promise. I go into my world accomplishing the purposes that the Holy Spirit will put before us and saying this is all moving toward a day when the Lord Jesus himself will reappear. Not my choosing when he will do it, but rather the Lord um, God the Father will know that day. Till then, we just ask the question, what, are you have, what will you have me to do? Who can I speak to about the hope that I have? Now, we're going to use a portion of Scripture to enter into um, this time of confession. It's from 1 John chapter 1. Um, we're going to say these words together. I'll leave some quiet moments for um, personal confession. I'll prepare the Lord's Supper, and then we'll have a public confession of our sins and uh, then I'll invite you forward. But 1 John chapter 1 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is just, he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness.